0: Hey everyone, welcome to Infused Church Online. My name is Taylor, and today we're kicking off a brand new series called For. Because isn't it true that you can get to know someone and know what they value because of what they're for? You see, what we're for can make a defining impact on our life and how we prioritize our time, our finances, our relationships. And so today and throughout this series, we're going to be talking about some things that you can be for and how it can transform your life. So stick around. Today, um, we begin a four-part series called Four, which will lead us up to our four-year anniversary. So by the end of this, you're going to be so tired of hearing the word for or seeing the letter, uh, number, excuse me, rather, uh, for. Today I want to begin by asking you uh, a question um, that at least subconsciously you've certainly thought of at least once or twice. What does God think about when God thinks about you? What does God think about when God thinks about you? When you think about what God thinks about when God thinks about you, what do you think about? Make sense? If God exists, If God plays a role in our lives, if God interacts with humanity in any way, what does God think about when you come to his mind? Now, for Jim Carrey and uh, the movie Bruce Almighty, he uh, thought that God was an almighty smiter, right? That he was taking everything good from him. That God really just didn't care for him, And maybe that is you, and that is your version or what you think about when you think about what God thinks about when God thinks about you, right? And maybe, on the other hand, you think differently. Maybe you think that when God thinks about you, he thinks pretty good thoughts. He's for you and not against you. Kind of depends on maybe how you've grown up or what you've heard or certainly what you have heard from Christians, Now, how you answer this question, in fact, I think, has a really big impact on your life. In fact, I would just say it's a really big deal. How you think that God thinks about you has a tremendous impact on whether or not, for example, you connect with him or not. What you value or not. Even, and some of you who consider yourselves followers of Jesus know that how God thinks about you and how God thinks about the yous sitting around you may impact or should impact how you treat other people. It can change your life. And in all fairness, it does in every other place in your life, in every other relationship in your life. I mean, if you think about maybe a friend of yours or an acquaintance of yours or even your boss— If you think that your boss thinks really negative thoughts about you, dislikes you, frustrated by you, hates you, what do you do? You behave differently, right? You avoid them. Maybe you even find a whole new job just simply because of what your boss thinks about you. I mean, that's incredible. That could have years and years of impact on your life. Maybe you've done that before, and you know that, wow, that can really change the rhythm of your life or your family dynamics just simply based on what somebody thinks about you. And maybe for you, you grew up in a a church community or in a um, part of Christian faith or maybe another faith, Judaism, Islam, or any of the other somewhat major world religions. And for you, um, God was this God that kind of sat back and put a scale in front of you and said, well, you better end up on the right end of that. Or maybe God was an angry God, judgmental God, controlling God or certainly the Christians in your church were. And for you, that is why you walked away and ceased a relationship with your Heavenly Father because of what you thought God thought or thinks about you. And unfortunately, as I was um, preparing this message and thinking through this question, unfortunately, I think oftentimes, whether we realize it or not, we fall victim to some really profound but really common, incorrect assumptions or perceptions or perspectives when it comes to this question. That, in fact, we let our own views dictate what we think about what God thinks about us. And so I just want to go through at least three of these that kind of came to my mind, that some of our incorrect perspectives, when that we kind of overlap onto what God thinks about when God thinks about us is how we see ourselves. For example, when you grew up, I don't know if this is you, um, but maybe you were just terrible at some uh, subject in school like math. You just were bad at math. And, and, um, or, or maybe, maybe um, you were really bad at spelling like you couldn't pass a spelling test to save your life. Maybe you, you had um, a, a, some form of impediment, maybe a speech impediment that, that uh, people kind of made fun of you for, for how you talked. Like, for example, when you say the word um, library, you say library, and people are like, where's the other R, Taylor? I mean, this is not about me. But, you know, people can give you a hard time for how you say things. And so you grew up, and, and people maybe gave you a hard time, or you bullied or something like that, and I'm not giving you a hard time, okay, for those of you that call me out on that, um, in all fairness, but, um, and, and you, you were bullied, and so you just thought to yourself that you were kind of less than everybody else. Maybe it was how you saw yourself in the mirror physically. You were too much of something. You were too tall or too short, or you're too skinny or too wide. You're not athletic enough, not strong enough, not smart enough, not daring enough, not decisive enough, and obviously, what kind of God would like that kind of a person. For some of you, you're like, that's me still today. It wasn't just when I grew up. I struggle with that today. But what if that's not true? What if God doesn't take his cues when he thinks about you from how you think about yourself? Or maybe, on the flip side, things are just going well. And so you think God thinks pretty well of you because you're just like in this season of life where parenting is just kind of smooth, all like one or two of you, okay? That everything's just working out. And you're like, you know what? God obviously thinks I'm doing a pretty good job. Or maybe you read the Bible this month or this year. And you're like, obviously, I'm a great Christian, and honestly, you might be. (laughs) The bar may be pretty low. I don't know. Maybe you're just, you have a great uh, driving record, right? You don't have many speeding tickets, and so you just think, because life is going well, and you see yourself as doing well, that God thinks you're pretty well. But what if God doesn't take his cues from you? Or another one, how others see us that we fall victim to the incorrect perspective or assumption that how others see us defines what God thinks about when God thinks about you and and we all think that we're going to grow out of this once we graduate high school and we become an adult but we all know that all that's happened is it's just gotten a lot more complicated it was just a lot simpler in high school but now, when others look at us, there's a lot more layers and things and aspects of our lives that they could judge us on. So I'm not going to spend too much time here, but this is, for some of us, a major, major reality. And if they think of that about us, if we have trouble making friends or making authentic connections with people, then obviously God must have a terrible time making a connection with us too. And God doesn't think very well of us. Or finally... And this is the easiest one, especially if you grew up in a religious um, lifestyle, religious home. This is very difficult because we easily, easily fall into this. What we do, what we do will determine our value in God's eyes. That for some of us, when we make mistakes, when we accidentally put the whites in with the colors, and then our spouse tells us that we're going to go to a very, very warm place one day, because this is the tenth time we've done that, right? That we think to ourselves, well, maybe that's true. A little bit. Or, or certainly when we think about the mistakes we've made, the regrets we have, the points of shame in our lives, or perhaps we could just wrap some of those together in the bundle that we call sin. When we miss the mark, that's what sin means, when we miss the mark with God and God's children. That that sin kind of gets there, and as much as we want to push it to the side or just forget that it's there, that we think now that has defined our value in the eyes of God. And it is true in many, many religions, what we do determines our value to God. But Christianity is almost the only one, the only world religion, where this does not define our value. And you may struggle with that idea, but I just, and if you do, I just want to push you, uh, or encourage you, excuse me, not push you, encourage you to go out and read about the uh, um, criminal on the cross. And how even though in the last minutes, what we have done, maybe throughout our entire life, doesn't necessarily have a bearing on where we'll spend our eternity. So, what does God think about When God thinks about you. What does God think about when God thinks about you? And I'm just going to be really honest with you right off the bat. God loves you. And God is for you. And I know this not because I just made it up or because it feels good to say that or it makes us kind of feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's because Jesus told us as much. And Jesus didn't just tell us. Jesus modeled it. Jesus, who we as Christians believe was the Son of God, or God in a bod, walking among us for a couple decades, and teaching, and preaching, and modeling. He told us that God is for us, and God loves us. And then, not only that, but then the people who followed Jesus, the disciples, and even more in addition to the disciples, tell us through their letters... That we followed him. The disciples would say, we followed Jesus. And time and time again, we messed up. We got arrogant. We got prideful. We, we betrayed him. We rejected him. And yet he still cared for us. So today, I want to let Jesus explain to you what God thinks about when God thinks about you. And the way that Jesus is going to do that, and there's many, many verses that we could go to and we could look through, and, and many that are very familiar to you. In fact, today will probably familiar, be familiar to some of you if you grew up in church. Um, we're going to look at some parables, two in particular, that are very famous parables. And essentially, a parable is a story that illustrates a point. It's a fictitious story that Jesus would so often use to explain something to the people who were following, or at least the people who were listening to him in that moment. And today, the people who were listening to Jesus in this moment were three different groups. The first group were the sinners, okay? The sinners. And most of us kind of get an idea of who that would be the sinners, all right? And then there were the tax collectors. And that's important, especially for Luke, because we're going to be in Luke today, because Luke would differentiate between sinners and tax collectors. Because tax collectors were like far worse. They were like the worst of the worst sinners. They got their own category. And for some of you, based on how much you're going to have to pay into the IRS, you would probably agree with that right now. Or maybe some of you are avoiding doing your taxes because (laughs) you don't want to find out. And then the third and final group were the religious people, the religious leaders, the, the people who had to make sure everything was so prim and proper. And so Jesus had this really dynamic group, including his disciples, that he was teaching to, and he wanted to let them know what God thinks about when God thinks about you or us. And so Jesus, the master teacher, gives us his answer um, in a parable, and he does so in a parable that appeals to something that is so practical and relevant for all of us. And, and, and it begins like this, or Luke documents it like this, starting in chapter uh, 15. You can watch up here if you've got your Bible app, you want to follow along. He says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now, if you're familiar with the story, try not to jump ahead and stick with where we are, because there is a lot to unpack here. In, in those days, a silver coin was about 18 cents in today's terms. 18 cents. What do you do when you lose 18 cents? Nothing, right? You don't even recognize it's gone. It could be sitting in the couch for the rest of time. In fact, you could sell the couch with the 18 cents in it, and you'd never know or care because there's no value in that. But Jesus is appealing. Jesus is trying to make a point to something. That we may not care for the 18 cents, but God does. Even something as little as just a few cents matters to God. And this is kind of contrary, but we all can understand what it feels like to lose something, can't we? Because, I mean, ladies, when when your husband or your man, okay, loses his wallet, Who has to come to the rescue? Everybody, right? The neighbors. SWAT has to show up, right? Because that wallet has to be found, especially when they're already late because they didn't plan ahead and get everything arranged the night before, and now they got to get out the door, and so, like, everybody, all family on board got to find the wallet, right? Men, what happens when the lady loses her hairbrush? Loses her nail file. Loses her black shirt. What do you do? You say this, well, don't you have another black shirt? Don't you have another nail file? And I I try not to say it in that dumb voice, but that's me, and it's been me for many, many years. So you're telling me you don't have another pair of socks? No. What is it you do, men, When your wife or your spouse loses something, you search high and low. You have to stop everything because when something of value is lost, you have to turn out the seat cushions to find it, right? You have to turn out the... In fact, for me, this was really funny, and I am not exaggerating at all. Literally, as I am writing this section of my message, Stephanie comes in. It's like yesterday morning, about like 6.30 in the morning, okay? And she says to me, I just thought it was perfect she says, hey, have you seen my jeans? I can't find my jeans. And so I have learned to not say, well, don't you have other pairs of jeans? No. I said, I'm not sure, hon, but if you need help, let me know. And then she's like, well, I may. And I said, well, let me finish my message first because I care more about you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I have learned that you just got Jesus says we all know what happens when something is lost and so he gives us this rhetorical question to illustrate what happens when the woman loses that one thing What do you do? Jesus answers in the next verse. He says doesn't she light a lamp So you get your phone light out right and you're looking under bed sweep the house You're searching everything flipping seat cushions under rugs everything and searches carefully not until she's tired not until it's not worth it anymore. Not until she gives up or gets distracted or goes off because she has a meaning. Until she finds it. And Jesus' audience, and Jesus' disciples especially, knew Jesus' point. Because in every parable, somebody was God and somebody was us. Somebody was you and somebody was me. And in this story, who was God? The woman the woman who even though she had 9 out of 10 she was batting 90% she said no that one it's lost and it's worth finding it's worth finding and and who are we we're the thing that in the grand scheme just seems so like 1 in 6 billion but to god is exceptionally worth caring for. And the kindness and the compassion and the perseverance and the dedication that God will take to find the one. And then when God finds the one, to signify the value of that 18 cents, what happens? What does God do? What does she do in the parable? When she finds it, it goes on, she calls to her friends, she calls to her neighbors, and together says, rejoice Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. To which we say that is a little much for a coin. In fact, if my neighbor did that and came out of their house and said, Guess what? I found my 18 cents. You'd be like, You're crazy. Go back home. But God says, No. That's how much I care. One more example, backing up. Um, He says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Now, Jesus is raising the stakes. Because I think Jesus knows us too well. Jesus knows you too well. That you and I, though we may even be so familiar with the story because we've colored it, we've listened to it, we've read it growing up as a kid, we still forget it. Jesus knows this is hard for us to believe. So Jesus raises the stakes. He says, You know, you lose something. What's your tendency? buy now button on Amazon. We'll just buy a new one. We'll get a new one. And guess what? The benefit is we we shop on smile.amazon.com, which means 1% of everything we've shopped goes to Infuse Church, so we can feel really, really good about it. And if that, if you're like, what? You can go to our website, infuse.church/give, and find all the answers. Giving plug. Anyways, we just buy it, right? We replace it. But Jesus raises the stakes and he says, no, 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 no. Now, if if nine wasn't enough, ten wasn't enough, we're going a hundred. And one of the sheep is gone. And sheep are finicky creatures. Sheep in those days often get sick, often get lost, get eaten, get hurt. What are we going to do about the one? Who's God in this? God's the shepherd. Who are we? We're the sheep. And what's God going to do? Jesus answers again with a rhetorical question. Doesn't he? Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country, in the vulnerable, in the exposed, in the you just free roam anywhere you want, the open country, and take a risk and go after the one that's lost? Not until he runs out of food, not until he gets tired, but until he finds it. Because it's worth it. Because he's for it. And he loves even the one sheep. And when he finds it, what happens? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and carries the sheep home. And it sounds great, doesn't it? Because when he gets home, he calls his friends, he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found that which is lost. And it's so warm and it's so encouraging, isn't it? But my friends... Let's be honest, like how often, how often when, when you are lying, when you are kind of like sinning, when you're hurting others, when you're messing up, when you're saying things that you shouldn't say, when you're, when you're struggling with your vulnerabilities, when you're lost and alone, when you're broken inside and you're just hurting when you're stressed to the max and you just don't know what to do. When you look in the mirror and you're disappointed with what you see and the life that you've lived, and you're beating yourself up because of what you've done or how you see yourself, how often, how often does this thought run through your mind? God is for me. How often is that the first thought that comes to your mind? Does this even enter into the equation for you when you feel lost or you are the lost sheep in the story? How often does the fact that the God creator of the universe, Him being for you, how often does that really enter into the equation? Or at what point does it? A few days later when you calm down and things have kind of de-escalated? See, this is why I think Jesus knows this is tough for us. Because it is so much easier to go to self-deprecation. It is so much easier to analyze and beat ourselves up than it is for our minds and our hearts to go to this. And he is wanting. God is wanting. This is why Jesus is telling us. God is wanting us to know. First thing, the first thing to come to our minds and our hearts is, God is for you. And he cares about you. And he wants you to celebrate that fact. God is for you. And I get it for some of you Christians, like God is for you is kind of like old hat, right? I mean, it's just, well, you know, You're always supposed to know Jesus loves me. This I know. But how often does Jesus died for who come to mind? Because God so loved who come to your heart? That Jesus, God in a bod, loved people in such a way that the people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. The people who had nothing in common with Jesus liked Jesus. They weren't turned off by His power or His miracles or His presence. They didn't feel because of their sin, that they were less valuable then. They felt like they were a part, and that maybe they just weren't liked, but that they were loved. And you know, through your life experience, how impactful this can be. Because having f- someone for you, having someone for you can change your life. This is, this is a principle that has the potential, if you get this here, to change your life. Because, I mean, and the, e- the easiest example of this is when you, you first met your boyfriend or girlfriend, your future husband or wife, and you felt like they were so incredibly for you, it changed everything, didn't it? I mean, you couldn't even see straight for a couple weeks. It was overwhelming to you. The depth of connection that you felt, felt at that time, and some of you married couples, you may have to think back a few years, I realize, but you remember that time when you were like, is this the one? I mean, we have that phrase, the one out of everybody. Why is it the one? Because in all of the world, there is one person that is for you in such a unique and profound ways, it changes everything. Now, hopefully it changed you for the better, but we all have to recognize that they can also have a negative effect on you, right? I mean, benefit, they help you get out of debt. Negative, you get in more into debt. Right? They may help you to explore and branch out in your life, but they may also constrict and restrict. But they have that influence because you know that they're for you. Or maybe you had a mentor or a coach growing up. Maybe you were on a sports team or in band or something. And they were just an amazing coach or mentor because they just poured into you because you knew they were for you. And you trusted them. And so when they were for you and they said, hey, you should try this or you should do this and they taught you amazing values like dedication and hard work and perseverance and endurance and they listened to you and they created a safe environment for you. Your life was changed forever because of that one coach or teacher or mentor, whoever it it may have been for you. Or certainly in some of our lives, our parents or a parent I'm guessing the times in your life when you felt the closest to your parent, you felt the most loved by your parents or parent or guardian or family member was when they made it explicitly clear that they were for you. Maybe in the times when you didn't deserve their compassion and their forgiveness, but they gave it to you anyways. And you look at those memories with fondness and they listen to you. And they helped you. And it was authentic. And it changed your life because of it. What changed? Your life. Why? Because they were just simply for you and you knew it. And that's why I think when we think about God, we think in terms sometimes of Heavenly Father because there is a parent in heaven that is for you And I think trusting that God is for you can change your life. That putting your faith, trusting in what you cannot see, that is faith, putting it in the fact that God is for you can mean the difference. Because listen, if God can forgive you even when you cannot forgive yourself, doesn't that force you to think a little bit? You may not have been able to let go of your past decisions, but your Heavenly Father has genuinely forgiven you. Do you think that could help you come to the terms with your past and help you in a journey towards forgiveness? If you've ever been close to and in proximity to a 12-step program, what's one of the, one of the steps? Connecting to a higher power. Why? Why? Because in the midst of some of the most challenging moments in your life, God can come in and say, no, you are not defined but how you see yourself, what you see in the mirror, how others see you, but you are defined by my love for you. Because God is for you, your value is set with Him. Set with Him. That even No matter what your paycheck total is, when you go in, you look at your pay stub, right? And some of you, you stress out about that. You're like, how can I get more out of this? How can I get a better job to have a better paycheck? And it starts to define your life, consume your focus and time, or your insecurities, or your fear, or your divorce, or your relationship status, because you've just been single for so long. And it just feels like it's the only thing that kind of matters anymore, and it's just become a defining part of your life. What if in the midst of that, God could come in and say, no, no, no. That doesn't define you. I define you. My love for you, you being that one out of 99, that I will risk losing the 99 just to find you. Trusting that God is for you allows you to grow in ways that you may never have expected to grow. No longer... Will you have to, like, will you so desperately need the affirmation of others? Because their affirmation isn't what defines you. I mean, it's nice to get a compliment, but you don't need that to continue. You don't make decisions based on how how nice people will then suck up to you, maybe if you're a boss or a leader, that you will feel affirmed and cared for by your heavenly Father, not other people around you. Not that that's not nice, but it doesn't have to define you. That perhaps for, for you, you, you can go from um, uh, to, to you, you need to serve me or, or you owe me kind of mentality to a mentality of how can I help you? Going from you need to have this done and this done and this done in our home because I bring home the paycheck or, or whatever maybe relationships you have with people around you to instead of, yeah, I do this, how can I help you? that that when it comes to tough crucial conversations you wouldn't be threatened or hurt or conflicted about feedback that you get from your peers or your friends or your family that you could because god defines you not that conversation you could have an authentic honest conversation that you've never been able to have until god defines your value that you may prioritize your life differently Not by the demands of the world, but because of the love your Heavenly Father has for you. Maybe you would be willing, because God defines you, you would be willing to miss that meeting because you know in the grand scheme of things you're still loved by your Heavenly Father despite missing that meeting, and instead you would go to your kid's basketball game. Or you may miss a kid's basketball game, and you bring your whole family, and you go to church instead. And I get that I'm biased because I think this is really an awesome group of people to be a part of. But you begin to prioritize your life differently. You're not defined by the things that have held you back in the f- past and allows you to grow. Maybe you adventure into a life of generosity. That's a new idea for you. And, and not just like giving to the church. I mean, that's great, but you would, you would pick a plan and a percentage. You would you'd say, you know what, I'm going to give like 5 or 10% of my overall income every year, and I'm just going to give it away. If you have an issue giving to the church, then don't make this about the church. Give it somewhere else. But that you would live a life of generosity. Because God is for you, and you are no longer defined by that paycheck or that bank statement so much as you have been in the past, and I guarantee you, you will walk away from some of those new experiences of having crucial conversations that you couldn't before, giving in a way that you couldn't before, and you will see life just abundantly come out of those relationships, of your generosity, of your kindness. That's my hope as we go through this series. And we're going to get more practical over the next few weeks of of how this can play out. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be to play along with this. This is just healthy to think about. Is God for me? And subsequently, what, what am I for? Am I for a different type of relationship? Am I for a different type of conversation? Am I for a different way of managing my time or my money? In your programs, as you came in today, and maybe you didn't grab one, I know some of you aren't quite used to doing that. Um, there's some cards, though, I think, in the back. And you're going to hold on to this card this week, but, but next week we're going to give you an action item with this. But on the back of the card, it says, What I'm For. And the reason I thought this is important, not just because it works with our series, but because um, about a year and a half into Steph and my relationship, we started going through some of the big tests of our life so far. And we started having to process through challenges. And one of the things that Stephanie did in her infinite wisdom is she asked me to do something I had never done before. She asked me to sit down and define what I was for. And and in my case, and you don't have to do that, but this is just how I did it, but I listed them out in order of importance. Most important, second important, third important. And I defined what I was for. And then I, because the exercise was, then you hold that up to your life and you say, is that really in my actions, how it plays out. Maybe you just need to start simple this week, that you take this card home with you this week, or maybe you'd leave it, or you just think about it this week, you bring it home, leave it in the car so you can bring it next week. You just think about the idea of God is for you. And if God is for you, what are you for? Are you for God? Could that make a difference in your life, in your marriage? Maybe that's where you need to start. Start simple. Maybe you kind of know this. Maybe you'd work together with your spouse on this. But that by the time we get to our four-year anniversary on March 25th, we're going to have a whole wall of things that we're for. Everything from our families to our communities. Because when we can get together on this, when we move from just individually getting this to family getting this to a church community getting this, we can change literally the world. Because let me tell you, and I say this all the time, but the early church didn't have a lot to go on the first 300 years of the church, but what they did have is a God that was for them. And that means that today there's over 2 billion people who profess Christianity as their faith. What if we trusted that God was for us? What if we together trusted that God was for us. And in the line that that we're heading towards our four-year anniversary, I thought it might be healthy for you to recognize, if you don't already, what trusting that God is for us can do. And the best example that I can think of, the most relevant and in-the-moment example that I can think of, is what you see when you look around, literally right now, where you sit. The fact that Four years later, there is still a community of people meeting on Sundays at 10.30. Even if you're you're watching us online, we did not have online video four years ago. We had nothing actually online when we started. Selfishly, I wish, this is me just selfishly here for a second. Selfishly, I wish you could see through my eyes and you could see the, the challenges and the successes that we have gone through and endured and celebrated over the last four years? Because if you did, it would like really click. But that's not how God works, and I'm really okay with that. How God works is he, it's not just going to be as easy as seeing a slideshow and being like, oh my gosh, that's absolutely incredible. But it's trusting that God is for you, and then stepping out in that faith, in your life, and in your church. But to give you like just a real quick example in like 2 seconds. Keep in mind as a church, a new church, brand new church, some numbers behind being a new church and what that means and the implications of that. If you look at the statistics, the chance that a church will survive to meet its 4-year anniversary is 67%. 67%. That's 2 in 3. If I came to you and said, hey, would you like to send your your child to a school district that graduates two out of three kids, would you be happy with that? If I said, hey, could you invest in the company and uh, it's a brand new venture, and I think there's about a 67% chance that we could make it, would you invest in that? Not great odds. You want to know what's filled that gap for us? From beginning and and it may not be you. In fact, today may be your first Sunday, but it has for people that are sitting around you over the years that they have said, even though, and they might even know that you you might even know that you did it, but that were that that's the odds. But you said in the midst of that, I'm going to trust that God is for this community of people, and it fills the gap. You want to know the average amount that's invested into a new church when it begins? On average, in the United States, when it begins. One hundred seventy-two thousand dollars. One hundred seventy-two thousand dollars. Want to guess it? What we started with? Twenty. That is not an exaggeration. That is a total number. What fills the gap? Trusting God. Trusting God. Second Sunday, because you always judge a new church by its second Sunday attendance, never its first because it generally is a little inflated. You look at the second Sunday. Second Sunday we had, and some of you know this because I say it often, 12 people. 12 people. What fills the gap when you have 12 people sit in a coffee shop and you're like, I hope this makes it trusting that God is for you. Because four years later, then you get to look back and you get to say, oh my gosh, We've grown by 675%. Last, week, uh, last month's attendance was like 93. We've been breaking over 100. I'm just going off the 93 number. Because it is easy to sit there and say, I don't know if this is going to make it, but despite the odds, despite the odds, growing, we've grown every single year after that, and we've overcome challenge after challenge. And we've celebrated success after success. Why? Because we decided to trust God when even the numbers didn't add up. And that's why I want you to think about what could happen, what will happen if we trust that God was and is for us. And we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks that if we do, we will be able to make even a bigger impact than we have so far. And in the process, you personally may just find a new life worth living in new ways and grow in ways you didn't imagine possible. So I hope you're here for next week. Let me pray for us, uh, sing a song, and get you out of here. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to um, be grateful. Grateful for um, the love that you have shown us, the care that you have shown us, that you've stepped in when we needed you most. And perhaps even for those of us who it's our first Sunday and and that's not the infused church we've experienced because we're just brand new. But that's the infused church that is here today when we walk in the door. A church that over the years has trusted you. Trusted that you're for us. And in so doing, been for you as well. And been for the people whom you love and the community of Tiffin which you love. And so, Lord, my prayer is that we continue through this series, and as we celebrate four years, we would not lose sight of what it means to trust that God is for us and that he cares for us. And that, Lord, as we move forward, you'd give us the strength and the wisdom and whatever it takes to remember and live into the implications of that love. In your name I pray. Amen.